My name's John Downs. I'm the founder of the Centre for Fortune Zoology, and you're listening to Inside the Goblin Universe. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Goblin Universe on Paranormal UK Radio Network. My name is Ronald Murphy. I'm Brian Bowden. And uh, it's good to be here, Brian. And we have a very exciting uh, guest here today that you actually uh, were able to obtain for us. His name is Mr. Paul Sinclair. Uh, It's going to be a really interesting talk today. The guy is very engaging, uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, listening to some of his research. Yes, me too. Um, I I originally heard Paul on another one of the PAUK radio shows. Uh, He was on Arizona Tramp Swamp Gas. And it was just fascinating, and I had 50,000 questions, and I had to contact Paul. So we're going to get him going in a few minutes, but uh, let's uh, see what's going on. How are you doing this week? You know what? I'm doing well. I, I, I'm glad that you asked because uh, the, the very first conference of uh, of the season here in the United States, as far as I'm concerned, uh, occurred on April the 1st, and that was the Butler Paranormal Conference in uh, Butler, Pennsylvania. And I, I was uh, very excited to attend this particular conference. It had a, a lot of big names. John Ventry was there, and uh, he is a, uh, a MUFON investigator. He's been on a lot of, uh, of documentaries uh, on uh, – on the on the television over here in the United States, and he did a very very good job talking about uh, his haunted life. Now, not only does he discuss uh, UFO incidences, but he also discussed uh, hauntings, and he did a great uh, presentation on on demonology, which I found utterly uh, fascinating. Um, also, uh, Brian and Terry Seach, their husband and wife team here in the United States, uh, they talked about uh, some of the strange animals of uh, Western Pennsylvania. It, it wasn't. Uh, uh, very scientific, but at least it was very eye-opening concerning some of the uh, sightings that uh, happened in the uh, tri-state area around here. But uh, the only true uh, problem that I had with the conference is that I was there as an author selling my books, and they actually had me posted in a back room that had no audio or video feed to the rest of the conference. Oh, man. So the only uh, the only bad thing about that, in order for me to uh, watch any of the conference, I actually had to step out of the room and go around a corner and you know actually leave my entire uh, space uh, to watch the conference. So that's really the only uh, uh, downfall I think that this conference had. But uh, a lot of good, fascinating speakers. It, w- it was well attended, probably over 400 people. Wow, that's uh, a lot and, of people, uh, huh? That's a lot of people. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's good to see a lot of your old friends. That's one of the things that I like about conferences so much is sometimes you only see these people one or two times a year. So it was good seeing those guys. Oh, that I mean, it, I found it interesting that they chose April 1st, I believe, April Fool's Day, to have, <laughs> right. have a paranormal yeah. conference. Uh, you know, it's almost always in April. Uh, it's usually at the latter part of April, uh, but it was kind of neat that it was, you know, on April on April uh, 1st, on April Fool's Day. We had pretty good weather, you know, it was a little chilly and everything. So, uh, but yeah, the people came out, people were interested in this stuff. And uh, the reason I wanted to bring up about the conference is because not only did it talk about, you know, Bigfoot and, and and, and, and ghosts and hauntings and, uh, and UFOs, this leads perfectly into our guest today who really has this kind of uh, uh, um, a multi-dimensional research to himself, uh, uh, Mr. Paul Sinclair. And uh, Mr. Sinclair, are you there, my friend? I am, Ronald. Yeah, yeah. You were there. Well, what I had just talked about, uh, my, the first conference that I attended was talking about, you know, ghosts and, and UFOs and, and creatures and things. This seems to be right up your alley, doesn't it? 
It really does, and I, I think I probably speak for a lot of people uh, when you that all of this is linked uh, without a doubt. I don't think I don't think we can separate the ghosts from the UFOs from the demonology. I think there's 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 a, there's an element or a string running through it all that's linked. Uh, and I don't know how it works, but I do believe that there's a common thread through through the lot of it through everything. Well, it's very interesting yep. uh, with yep. Paul. He doesn't know how yep. it works now, but I, you can guarantee it. He is a heck of a researcher, and he's going to get down to the nitty-gritty of it. So that's, we'll, that's we'll right. get answers from you. I know that for a fact. Yeah. And this is actually what Inside the Goblin Universe is all about. You know, We actually feel, Brian and I actually feel, that all this stuff is interconnected in some way as well. And we like to get the researchers in here to talk about this kind of stuff, to really try to get to the, to the source of, the, uh, of all these questions that we have. You know, there's a lot of UFO, uh, UFO, UFOlogists out there, a lot of cryptozoologists out there, and, but, but, and a lot of people that are into hauntings, but very few people try to pull this all together and that's what we're trying to do right now i think it's a good place to be uh, ronald i really do because uh you, you, i know i do realize that people who get involved in ufos that were initially my first my first passion in, because i it's, it's all i've ever known i was sort of i don't know i think i would it's all i can remember from an early age but uh the more I've looked into these things and the more I've researched, the more I realise that it's, it is it's all connected. And I think more researchers should be working together and pooling information because we, we, I could learn from people who are, who are researching ghosts and, and that, that spectrum of the, of, the, of, of the paranormal, whereas they, they could probably learn things from from the things i'm researching because i don't have the answers all i'm doing is researching like the rest of us you know that's right yeah nobody has the answers i mean that's why we're all here every time we do any kind of research we're left with more questions than answers and i think that they, i mean what you had said is very very pertinent we all need to come together it's not about a category it's not about some people that's just in, uh, interested in investigating bigfoot or just looking for ghosts and looking for evps and haunted homes you know this is about this this life question where does this stuff come from and as far as i'm concerned you know doing this for 40 some years it's coming to me uh that you know it's all coming from the same source whatever that source may be whether it's another dimension or you know a higher realm of thinking what have you um but but let me ask you a, a question there mr sinclair uh, how did you get started in this what was your definitive moment that you thought you know you know ufos is something that really interests me uh i think it's been there all along uh, uh ronald i um I remember my father waking me up uh, one evening. I'm not going to, I can't remember the time. I'd have been about six at the time. And our home used to look over fields and look and about a mile in the distance. There was a small town called Mexborough. And he, he woke me up to show me a huge luminous sphere that to a small child looked like the moon. And it was traveling along the rooftops. It, uh, obviously it wasn't a lot. It was higher than the roofs, but it took, it just looked as though it was travelling along the rooftops of Mexborough and just went away into the distance. And we, we watched this, and I don't know. If, I don't know whether there's some intermind connection, even as a child. Um, I don't know whether there's been some connection with my parents, because although my, my father expressed an interest in UFOs, he, he never talked about any experiences from them. But ever since that time, I I have been... 
Well, I, I, I struggled for years to actually tell people this, apart from my wife and close family, but I've, I've seen the beings. If that doesn't sound too crazy for your listeners, and I, I have seen them, I've got scars all over my body. Uh, Whitley Strieber picked up on this years ago and, and asked me to go on his radio show probably 12 years, 12, 10, 12 years ago, and I declined because I was just too, I was too nervous to to try and explain what I'd gone through and the trauma as a child. Well, it's, uh, I'm, 50, I'm 54 it's, years old now, and I wet the bed till I was 13. I wouldn't leave the bedroom at night um, because because of them. <laughs> they weren't there every night. I've only got I've only got fragmented memories of them, but it's not good. <laughs> but, but so so basically, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to divert listeners away from from your initial question, Ronald. Because I'm just oh wondering. no, this no, is no, actually this, part this, of it. <laughs> yeah, this, this is absolutely fascinating. So let me let me just follow up on what you're talking about. What area of England did this t- take place whenever you were a child? South Yorkshire. So if you knew Sheffield and Doncaster and Rotherham. That would be the location. I lived in a little village called Old Denneby, and just just a single, uh, you know, I was I was an only child, and my mum and dad had a little council property, and it backed onto fields and pasture, and a mile a mile and a half in the distance was the small town of Mexborough, and that's where we where I saw the UFO with my father, uh, and after that, and I've got to say after that. I sound like I'm elaborating. I don't want the story, this story to change right. in other interviews with people. But the fact is, I saw the beings. I've got recollections of seeing them after that. Uh, and, and I did see them, and, and, I, and they were in my room. And I have got scars on my arms, and I have requested at, at Whitley's uh, uh, urging to get my medical records. And I have, I've, I've got all this stuff where the doctors are absolutely perplexed by the lesions, punch-hole lesions that are appearing on Mr. Sinclair's arms uh, that come in six-month periods. This was in the 1990s when I was in my 20s, uh, late 20s. I think 1997, 98, 99, and it stopped after that. Uh, and no did did you, did the- you um, ever see anything on your father that was peculiar? Or um, or Ed, did you ever discuss this further with your father about me? You like Dad? Oh, you have a bruise, or you notice something, and then you kind of put one one and one together, and you kind of said, "Ooh, maybe he was uh, being visited as well." No, I never did. If I'm being truthful, Brian, my, my father, he he, I can remember having the von is it the von Dynikin books, and and the, and his interest in the UFOs, but he never. It, it was just an it was just an interest. He had he was interested in aircraft as well. Uh, he was interested in many things, but he never he never pushed the thing. I don't even think I told him about the beings. I remember him waking waking me up to see that luminous sphere traveling across the rooftops. I, I don't blame him at all because I mean we've discussed this before on the show, and I think every one of us has had this experience. This is a a incredibly embarrassing, strange, bizarre poke fun at type of subject or topic and only until recently has it been a little bit more mainstream where it's more acceptable in general i would never say i was uh, and i've researched this for since i can remember um i don't know if i'm an experiencer or not i uh, don't know i mean we we had missing time on an investigation at one point we don't know what happened there but i would never bring the i mean i brought it up i, I don't care anymore i mean usually when you mention something to somebody 
um, and they know you're interested in the subject, eventually at a party or a family gathering or something, they say, well, there was this one time. And then it, it just starts flowing, and, and people have experienced it, and they feel a little bit more comfortable with it. But I agree with you. It's scary. Right. It's something you don't want to talk about. And if you're seeing um, entities, we'll call them, in your room, and you're you're part of that of abducted type of uh, persons I- in the world, I wouldn't. I would just be. I wouldn't leave the bedroom at all. Brian, you you are echoing my thoughts. Even the the part where people at a family gathering or at a party, and you. you if if you if you've got this interest and you've got this passion and or this desire to learn, you'll be wanting to bring this subject up. And it's almost as if dare I mention this? Dare I? <laughs> and what? Yeah. It's true though, isn't it? And what you usually find is someone, or or if not someone, I would I would I would go as far as to say, if there were ninety nine people in the room, ninety nine would have will have an experience, but they won't all speak about it. Some no. of them want to show. In the farthest corner of the mind, because it's simply because I believe, and I don't want people to think I'm arrogant. It's only my opinion. Right. But we just we we're not equipped mentally, uh, and we're not advanced enough to get our heads around what we're seeing and what we're experiencing. And um, I think if we could just accept that these things, these these absolutely truly amazing experiences happen and just just say this has happened but we don't have an explanation for it but it is a true for not a, a true unexplained phenomena event the acceptance we, we we might then start to get as head around it other people start talking you know if we could get the populace as a whole to start relating strange experiences we might actually make some sense of this but uh, I don't know where you want to go with this, but I, I do have a theory where, where the answers to this lie. Well, I think, I think we need to hear that theory, my yeah. friend. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, and, and, and I've, I've not heard people, I've not heard anyone say this, and I'm writing about this in the second book that, I've, that I'm writing at the moment, that Truth Proof 2, if I'm being tr- truthful, and it's actually Truth Proof 2 beyond the thinking mind. And this is where the theory is. Because I think all of the answers that we're looking for lie beyond the thinking mind. If I think they lie in the unconscious. Uh, now, I, I'm, I'm, it's difficult to even explain because we're not equipped with the words. We're not even, we don't even have the, the vocabulary to describe the lights we see, the beings we see, the mental voices that we might hear. So, uh, but... Uh, okay, in a in a time in a time of trauma, let's just say a motor accident or, right. or an operation, the thinking mind is inactive and switched off, and we get we get reports of people seeing having out of body experiences and seeing themselves. That and yet, so the unconscious mind must be able to do this. I got onto the thinking mind theory because I'm researching uh, a, a, a suspicious death at the moment. Uh, with with the family as well there, but basically uh, we haven't spoken about this one. But if you don't mind, I will. Sure. In, in, Please go ahead. In, in February, on, on February the eighth, two thousand and ten, a chap discharged himself from Scarborough Hospital, uh, not far from me, and was found four days later on the twelfth of February partially naked on a gravestone in, in the grounds of a church called St. Oswald's Church in Filey. Now, 
when he left the, the hospital, oh, sorry, when he was admitted to the hospital, he had blue jeans on, white trainers, and a black jumper and a white shirt. When he was found, he had one black brogue shoe on, tracksuit bottoms, and a, and a black T-shirt. He was in completely different clothing, yet the police con concluded that he'd never made it home. Now, what, there's, there's tons to the story of this chap, but what, what, what I'm getting at is the brother-in-law, who was called Steve Wade, told me that he had a premonition that he told the deceased man about three weeks before. He told his, brother, he told his other brother-in-law about it and his sister-in-law and his daughter. And the premonition was, I hope this listeners find this interesting, the premonition was he, he had this fantastic dream where in the dream he was, he, he was searching for somebody in a ravine. He says, and he looked up from the ravine and he could hear voices and he climbed up the, the bank of the ravine and he thought he was looking at a reservoir and he could see the top of the water and what looked like uh, light-coloured sandy stone. Now, from that, from there, the, he had this dream three weeks before this man passed away, and it will make sense in a minute, listeners. From there, he says he was in a car with the deceased man, and he stopped to relieve himself. Uh, he was in the back with the deceased man. He stopped to relieve himself, and they drove off without him, and they were back in the ravine. He knew they'd gone to the ravine. From there, the, the dream, uh, in, during the dream, he got up and went to the toilet. Uh, and was lucid and and quite compassmentous, come back from the toilet, went back to sleep and went straight back into the dream. Fr from there, he was in a hospital looking, stood with a nurse and a doctor discussing a death. And he was looking at the deceased man. And he says, and he was sort of gone and vague, bearing in mind three weeks before this, he didn't have any recollection of what was going to happen in the future. And he's sort of thinking, well, that's how I... I'll not say the man's name. It's not fair on family at the moment, because sure. I've not asked if he can. It's, 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 we'll call him Dave. He's thought, well, that's our Dave. But he's sort of... He's gone. He's, he's not there. He says, and the hospital staff are telling me, there's nothing more you can do. You must go home. He says, and I'm stood with my wife as well. He says, and I thought, I knew it was a dream about death. He says, so the next morning I woke up and I told my wife and I told my daughter, and then I ended up subsequently telling uh, Dave's brother, and this was three weeks before, and the deceased. So on the 12th of February, 2012, this chap was found dead and partially naked in the graveyard on Ravine Road. On Ravine <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Now he'd never been before. Not, but the, the, it, it doesn't just stop there, uh, Ronald. He he says when we actually visited the place, I realised the reservoir I'd seen was the bridge going over the ravine, and the sandy wall that I'd seen was actually the sand, and the water I thought was on top of the reservoir was the sea. He says I actually saw everything in this dream. So. And I, I, I really believe him because the family have backed this up and I don't think at a time of great trauma and distress, which was what, what must have been for that family, losing is it, the brother. Is this something that he's done previously in the, in, in the not-so-past? You know, uh, does he have this ability or is this out of the not, blue? He, 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 he told me that he, he, told me that he saw, 
his mother-in-law pass away and he saw a light move above her. But he's not the kind of chap, I mean, I'm speaking to him, I don't mean on a daily basis, but I'm right. quite... I'm speaking to him quite often. He's not that. He's not. He's not interested in what we're interested in. It's it, 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 the premonition. Uh, I just saw something odd in this guy's death with the different clothing on, and and, and but bearing in mind, I'm jumping here a little bit. But this guy had 36 bruises on his body that that they said weren't suspicious. Yet he'd got five inch by eight inch bruises on his calves, which they, they attributed to falling down in the graveyard. Now, I don't know if I push you, Brian, backwards, you're going to fall on your backside or, or bang your head. I don't know how you're going to get a five inch by eight inch bruise on your calf. Uh, you know, yeah. It's, it's, so so I'd looked at this death and I thought, well, this one's interesting. And then when I, I dared myself to contact the family because it's a delicate thing to do. And then suddenly Steve Wade tells me about the premonition. So it, I'm thinking that these things, that there's something going off in the unconscious that we're unable to bridge. Uh, I, can I ask, Brian, Ronald, have you ever had what I would consider a pure thought? And <laughs> to elaborate, yeah. a, a thought that... I. You're just thinking about someone involuntary. You haven't had to struggle. You've just thought, oh, he's a really nice guy, and 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 it's just come to you. It's just a it's just a good thought, and then that's I I believe that's the unconscious mind working. I think that I think in the background, I, I, it's like a bridge. Once we right. start to think about things, almost like meditation, and you lay there and you can see things and you're experiencing things, but once you try and analyze what you're seeing. It dissipates. The thinking mind, you think, oh, who could that be? Could that be Steve? Could that be Brian or Ronald? And then, But once you start analysing it, it dissipates and goes. It's like the, there's all this world, there's all this activity taking place behind the thinking mind. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent point. Uh, and if we could actually contrast that with the uh, with with how we construct reality, you know, our mind is what puts limitations to reality. You know, it's our mind that formulates the idea and the concept of time and space. And you know, it's hard for us to imagine anything outside of a reality that we construct. But wouldn't it be fascinating if our reality actually is just our way of seeing the, you know, the illusion, you know, it's an illusion of what really is out there, you know, of, of the grand scheme of things. We're only seeing the shadows of the truth behind all this. Totally agree. You know, absolutely. And, you know, I, I wonder, I mean, obviously, it probably will never happen in our lifetime, but you, you, you know the lie detector that obviously oh, it yeah. can it predict when somebody's lying. I thought to myself, well, do you know the ultimate proof of the paranormal, the UFOs, people's sightings and people's accounts? What if we, what if a machine could be developed that could project our our thoughts, a thought projector? The, now they're working we, on that right now, actually. Um, there's that, a that, lot of these things where they're going to hook up uh, some of these, you know, basically we are a computer and we have electricity and, and you can hook up an organic chip and they've been doing experiments with that where you can actually record your thoughts and your brain patterns and images and everything else, just like your brain would do. This, this Brian, will be where the truth lies. 
this will be this in my opinion i mean it might not come straight away even when they've developed the, the the technology but this will be where the truth lies when 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 mr jones tells us that a ufo landed in his back garden and all the village laugh their heads off at him right. and think he's crazy if he could be if he could be connected in some way to some advanced technology like that that could project what he saw then it would silence people but you also have to this consider that these these right. these entities that are doing this that are able to uh transport in and out of homes or through or whatever have the ability to block those memories and repress them on purpose because that that would go if they if this can be freely accessed then it would it would go against um or hurt them or harm them it goes against their plan well, you want to keep certain things or, secret you know what? what you're doing yeah, well, Brian, the other thing that might be happening, though, it might just actually be our uh, human instinct to shut things off that are very, very painful. Uh, you know, I, that, that's the odd thing that might be going on here. You know, we are faced with things that we simply cannot explain. So sometimes it's part of our uh, our way of self uh, self-sustaining ourselves is just to shut those kind of painful memories off. That might be one thing that's going on. But but while we're on this topic, and this is an utterly fascinating topic, and I can already tell that we need to bring Mr. Sinclair back for another hour next. Oh yes, minute. we do. <laughs> but um, what I want to ask you, Mr. Sinclair, that that the Yorkshire area of England is a hotbed for the paranormal, isn't it? I mean, going back even thousands of years, you have reports of fairy activity in that area. So what do you think is going on in that particular area of England? You know, once again, I'm sure you you may agree, location is key. I, I agree. Yes. I, you know what? That's the other thing, too. Uh, Brian and I both agree that there are hot spots within the Earth. You know, in Europe, you know, you have the idea of ley lines, that there's these these natural portals, for lack of a better word, but there's almost like paranormal Wi-Fi hotspots <laughs> where things happen that don't happen any other places. Without a doubt, about six miles from where I'm sat now, seen as your show is the goblin universe uh there's a there's a burial mound called willie howe if any of listeners want to google willie howe you'll find a wealth of stories about willie howe not just written by me um and it's neolithic um it's, it's, it's very old and the first accounts to come out of come from willie howe are by a, a chap called william of newborough and they go, they go back hundreds of years uh, of a man travelling past the burial mound in the, in the early hours on a horse. And as he's passing, he's, there's a hole inside the mound and it's lit up. And he's, he gets off his horse and has a look. And inside he says that there's hobs and goblins having a banquet and feasting. Now... I don't know whether this is true or it isn't true, whether we, whether he was having images projected into his mind that fitted the current theme or of life back then. It might have been totally different to us if we were looking into it today. It might be computers, because I think these things just adapt like chameleons to the way we're adapting. But I, let me... I'm sorry for jumping there. So Oh, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> claims that he was offered a drink... All, all, everything fell to silence inside the, the banqueting hall inside Willie Howe, the burial mound. And he was offered a drink. 
So he accepted the drink, but didn't drink it. He poured it out, got on his horse and did a runner. <laughs> pursued by the hobs and goblins. Um, now, if that's a fairy story, fine. But what is interesting is the cup was give, the cup did exist and still does, as far as I'm aware. It was given to Edward the Elder as a wedding present. One of the kings, I think he was one of the kings of Scotland. And then another king express, expressed an interest in it, and it was handed to him years later. So this and cup I, is available? It's, it can be viewed or, or seen? I've tried. I've tried to trace its origins. Uh, it's, de- it's documented, and it was given to the king. Uh, not just some guy on the internet who wrote, oh, I think it was given to a king. <laughs> <laughs> it's documented that the cup of an unknown metal uh, and luster, I think it said, was given to Edward the Elder. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm not a great historian, so somebody might correct me on that. I know the name, Edward the Elder, and I know I'm right about that. And I think he was a king of Scotland. I think it ended in antiquities. I think it's in the antiquities of York Minster. But I have tried because I'm not far from York. I'm only probably, probably, I don't know, 70 miles from York. And I have tried, but I'm, I'm, I've not so far not been able to locate it or get anything firm that it, that is where the cup is. One, one so, of, yeah, no, no, I was just, I was saying that sometimes you have to be a little bit more persistent. You just keep writing letters and writing letters and you kind of craft a relationship. And eventually people are humanistic and they kind of give in like, okay, come on down. You know, you'll be surprised one day and they, they may say, well, do you want to see the cup or not? <laughs> well, you know, I have a fabulous relationship with people in archives at libraries all around this area. It's really good. They, no. they actually actively look for things if they come across things for me now, That's and it's really kind of, yeah. you know, um, Willie Howe, if, if we stay on Willie Howe, I've got a report from uh, uh, from a pilot who, the, there was a small airstrip at Willie Howe, and this guy called Alan had two planes. He had a, what's called a tug glider, and he had a, obviously dragging gliders up and getting them airborne. And he had a small vintage aircraft that weren't equipped for night flying. And they were, they were, they were based at the farm at Willie Howe, the bury, again, the burial mound. And one evening, uh, one, one day, Alan decided to take the aircraft for a flight. Uh, he wanted to go up around the coast of Whitby and up, 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 up along the coasts flying this aircraft that, as I says, wasn't equipped for night flight. He says and he timed his flight back so that he were back in good, you know, in good daylight hours. He said, and there were only about three, he's told me, I've face-to-face interview with this guy, and I've written about it. I think he's, if you typed in aircraft abduction over Willie Howe, you'll find something on Google without a doubt. And he says to me, He's coming back at about five in the evening and he could see the sun setting. He says, and I've got three metres on this aircraft. I think he said metres. And it's no good asking me what they are. I'm not that technical, but I think one's altitude, there's revs, and there was something else. So Alan's uh, coming back in the aircraft and he's, he's looking at the sunset. And he said he turned to his left and he saw another sun. He said, and I thought... I'm suddenly I'm confused. He said, and I looked at the sun setting, and I looked. He said, and there's another sun. He said, it's brilliant orange orb. 
He says, and then from from that moment, he said, it was almost as though the he gave his he gave me two analogies. The first one, he said, it was almost as though he says, can you imagine when you put the brakes on as hard as you can on a car, right? And it and it comes to a stop. He says, and I stopped in the air. He said, and I looked at the meters. He says, and I'm not I'm not I'm travelling still, but I'm not moving. He said, no, I'm not going any higher. I'm not going any lower. He says, and I just can't understand it. I said two analogies because his second one, because we spoke quite recently, and he said it were almost as if he said, I imagined if you if you'd flown in a fly had flown into a cobweb, and that's that were that's what he said to me the second time. <clears throat> he said, but then suddenly, I come. He says, suddenly I, I, I'm I'm sort of conscious again, and it's dark, it's night time. He said, and I'm thinking, Christ. He says, I'm looking down. He said, and. I mean, I'm in the same plot space, basically, and I continued flying. Luckily, there were a tractor in a field with lights on, working, and he put the aircraft down in the field. Now, he he'd not used any fuel, any more fuel, yet he'd been missing. He 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 claims that several hours had gone, so and that was over. Willie Howe. Now. We've, we've, that's why I say that you know these these things that are interacting with us in human consciousness and 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 human beings could be. People say, oh, why did why did they call them fairies? And now we're saying they're aliens. It's just human interpretation as we're as we're ad- advancing as a species. It's not that right. the. That these, that's true, Brian. You know, I mean, it's not that these things are changing. Perhaps it's our interpretation of it. If it is an advanced intelligence, uh, and we hadn't learnt flight when this guy was on his horse and he stopped at the burial mound to look, uh, we hadn't learnt how to fly. We hadn't got technology. They have to present how we are going to understand. I would think. I mean, yeah. these could these are, could be crazy theories of mine, but. It's, it's very difficult getting your head around something without the tools and right. without the information. No, I think you're do. I think you're a fantastic historian, my friend. I mean, to to listen to the things that you've already researched into is is really mind-boggling. But uh, one of the fascinating. Uh, parts of my research is indeed this connection to what was called in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance uh, the fairy realm. Now, the, the the point that you had just made, the story that you had just told, is very reminiscent of a tale that was told in the uh, late 1600s in Aberfoyle, Scotland, from a, a Reverend uh, Robert Kirk. And he had almost the exact same story. He was walking through the woods one night, saw a fairy mound, a bright white door opens into it. He enters inside and he's introduced to all these different types of fairies and goblins, you know. And they're simply using the vernacular of their time. Uh, They would not understand technology, so they would see the world in a very, um, you know, humble type of way, what they were used to seeing. Now, the reason whenever we talk about uh, abductions nowadays is we are a technologically advanced society. You know, we carry computers around in our our pockets, in our phones, you know. So whenever we have any kind of experience or type of uh, event – that we see the world from a very scientific point of view. Now, it, it's 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 what's to say that they're projecting this into our minds, or is that the way we're simply interpreting the reality that is at hand? Just, just another good point. I, I, I'm both. <laughs> no, I'm yeah. Like, yeah, but, but no, wouldn't it be? 
yeah. It would, wouldn't it be something though if 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 their world is just completely unknowable to us at this point at this junction within our evolution you know that what we see that we cannot simply describe because we don't understand what's going on so we simply throw you know labels on it because that makes sense to us in the immediacy but maybe it's it's something that we simply cannot wrap our heads around at all i think you're absolutely correct you know i mean we we simply do not have we don't have the vocabulary we don't we, we don't have the knowledge to, to describe things that we have no knowledge of. Uh, if I could give a, 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 a an example that might that might let your listeners see what you're saying and what I'm saying, if we imagined if we imagined a, a remote tribe somewhere in in the Amazon rainforest that's never been seen before, and one guy's tracking through the forest one day, and a Vulcan bomber passes over low. <laughs> Now he's got to go back and describe that sound to his tribe. He's not going to have the vocabulary. He's not even. He's, he's, he, he, even in the animal kingdom, he wouldn't have anything to describe that roar. And and we know that scenario is probably never ever going to happen or ever has happened. But the things that people see and experience are so off off the scale. It's almost mind trauma, and that is why people decide, well, I'm not going to talk about this. Uh, Oh, yeah, I did see something, but I really don't want to talk about it because, you know, I mean... uh, They make excuses all the time about stuff like this. And, uh, oh, he was drinking, or I had a little too much that night for dinner, or I wasn't feeling well. They don't want to believe what they're, they're seeing um, because you're right, they can't comprehend it. They, they there's certain cultures in this world that still don't have words for hate, uh, love, happiness, goodbye. Um, so I can just imagine this. These are very primitive or people, and they see and hear this incredibly loud, scary sound and large craft. And the only thing they can relate to is it is a gigantic bird, and yeah, it's going to hurt us. Yeah, totally. You see, we involved within this subject be it ghosts ufos bigfoot the the dogmen we're, we're, we're a skeptic and debunkers dream scenario because we can't offer concrete proof the pressure it is always on the researcher to make the evidence fit and i've got no evidence that makes any sense but the truth of these unexplained events are that they are they are happening the fact and that fact can't be denied if a series of events keep repeating themselves, and a, you know a, a predictable pattern must be forming, it, it, it's it's really difficult. I mean, you can see my frustration, and I can. I, I do, and that's yeah, that's part of the scientific method, isn't it? I mean, this repeatability. Um, so even if we approach this subject with scientific scientific methodology, it's still not going to be accepted. It's still going to be refuted because science simply cannot explain it, so therefore it simply does not exist. Exactly. It is from the title of my book. I know we've not talked about the book, and it is. The, the book's called The Truth That Leaves No Proof. Truth Proof. It, it is a truth, but it leaves no proof. And that that is exactly why I titled the book the way I did, you and, know, I mean, I love the title, by the way, and it's exactly what we all do as researchers of this, as authors, Ron's an author and researcher, I'm a researcher, I'm an author, I, haven't, I have select things out, but this is what we do, and this is what Paranormal UK Radio is about, it is, we present what we find, 
I, I've always said this. I'm, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I want more enlightenment. I want more knowledge. I want to be able to debunk what I presented and then maybe put up something different. You know, just because I'm seeking the truth on a scientific method, which I weigh in, as well as a, wow, this person is out of their mind method. And that, it's so hard to comprehend. Um, we still get people uh, that, that my wife still laughs at me about it and, and friends and some family members and also some critics online. Um, it's 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 a very interesting but very controversial type of topic because of there is no proof. Well, layman proof. I mean, we don't know about the military. I mean, you have a ton of military bases in, in your area and around York. I mean, a ton of them. So they must know something's going on there. Um, you, you know, that, that's correct. The, the, the area that I researched to write truth proof, uh, I could, everything that in the book, the first book is, is within an area, a 30-mile radius of... Uh, the RAF base, uh, the former RAF base, RAF Bempton, uh, which sits on the edge of the North Sea. I mean, I, I was there last night. I was there till late last night. And that's where w- w- I coined the phrase intelligent light forms, the, 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 the spheres of light that, that just appear from nowhere, switch off, they, they appear as one, and then punch into a multiple of five instantly. That They're so unusual and the place is so remote that you can't. There's only a few people ever ever see these things. I mean, the fishermen know about them. The trawlermen are right. lucky enough to have a son-in-law who has a boat uh, that fishes the North Sea. They they've all seen these things, but these guys, that if it doesn't involve fishing and catching cod, they're not really interested. <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> no, but but that is a fact. But you know, this area of, of Bempton, area of Bempton. 25 miles, in between 10 and 25 miles off the coast, lots of military aircraft have crashed. Um, I've I've heavily researched Tornado ZA610 that crashed on December the 12th, 1985, uh, in mysterious circumstances, and Tornado ZE723 in the same area in 1998. That aircraft that crashed, there was lots of UFO activity at the time, and I've even found in archives reports of dark objects entering the sea this in paul sinclair making this up this is this is newspaper archives from 1998 talking about the dark objects entering the sea do you think it's like a portal there like a kind of like the bermuda triangle like some kind of magnetic field that the crafts the ufos are using to enter and exit uh but to lay lay craft like that we normal or conventional craft we have now they just couldn't handle it well, you could be very true. I, I don't. I don't actually know, Brian. You know, I mean, um, when I, you just said Bermuda Triangle, so I'll just touch on that. When I when I rang the historical records office, uh, historical records office, up inquiring about uh, files for ZA six ten, the December the twelfth eighty five one. I told them where it had crashed, and the guy, it could have been tongue-in-cheek, but he just said it. He says, we call that the Bermuda Triangle of the North. <laughs> I didn't even know that. That's yeah, great. I, yeah, well, I, I don't think it's widely talked about. I mean, I, I did enter it into Truth Proof because he did say it. You know, but briefly, if we can go to 1970, uh, in 1970, September the 9th, 1970, uh, an American exchange pilot was flying a Lightning over Flamborough Head and Bempton, and ten, he went. He disappeared from radar ten miles off Flamborough Head. Now, Tony Dodd, a fabulous investigator and author who has passed away, 
wrote a book, uh, I think it was Investigator, and he, he researched uh, Lightning XS894, I think it was, uh, extensively, but I found more information out, but I'll get to that in a second. If the, the Lightning, if, if any readers, uh, sorry, correct myself, if any listeners want to uh, research Lightning XS894, um, I think that's its co- that's its registration. It's it, I th- the the pilot was William. I think it was Shat. I've got to get this right because I don't want to sound like the guy from Star Trek. It's Shat, <laughs> uh, and he's definitely an American exchange pilot flying this aircraft. And it's a proper UFO event. You'll find a- absolutely pages and pages on the internet about him uh, supposedly intercepting a UFO off Flamborough Head and Bempton. In 1970. Now, Tony Dodd suffered. Uh, he, he got lots and lots of flack from from people and debunkers for bringing this into fruition in 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 the 1980s when he discovered the story. But I looked in some archives and found some things that probably don't they don't validate Tony, but they do help him. Uh, he dropped out of the story because of death threats, but he spoke to me and we spoke before his death. Uh, quite a few times about this aircraft. Now, it, it crashed on September the 9th. On a few days before it crashed, there was there was a marine launch, an RAF marine launch based at Bridlington. It had three boats at the time. It had two boats at the time, too. It was in the Bay of Bridlington and Flamborough, which is very close to where this aircraft went down. And something, uh, it, it was holed by a by an underwater submerged object. It said they were clear of everything, all rocks and unknown obstacles, and it it suffered a 12-inch by 20-foot hole in its hull. That was just days before lightning crashed. Tony never knew this. This would have added to his story and helped. I've got all the newspaper reports to back this up, and they're in truth proof. Uh, Now, what's interesting is, seven days after lightning crashed, a speedboat with five children on board and, and a father, the wife observing from the beach, said they were going at a slow speed and something hit them or they hit something six miles about six miles away from where this lightning crashed, disintegrated the speedboat. They were clinging to wreckage. They were picked up by a pleasure cruiser called the Glen Rose. Now, Tony never picked these things up, not because of bad research. I think because I'm local to the area, I'm right. I can get in these archives, uh, and that's what helped. Now, but now, does the marine launch does the marine launch mean that a UFO was present? I can't say that. Does it does the does the speedboat disintegrating mean that a UFO was involved? I can't say that. But what you've got three highly unusual incidents within. What are days of each other, days and weeks at the most, in a concentrated area? And another interesting thing, which I didn't add to Truth Proof because I didn't find out till later, but the the biggest ship in the Royal Navy, the Art Royal, right. came to Bridlington a few weeks later, and it was stationed off Bridlington. Now, I'm not saying that's because of the UFOs. I I, I couldn't possibly say that, but... You know, we've got the biggest naval gunship suddenly arrives off Bridlington. 
Well, that's you pretty know, interesting, I'm, actually. I mean, that, that they're aware of something's going on there, and it may not be actually a UFO. But look at it, look at it this way: when we do launches into space, we have windows, and this could have been a window that UFOs or, or other craft are using. They know follow the power of the energy, and it's such an intense energy or window where pure energy is coming through. Normal, you know, if if you put uh, it's like metal in a microwave. I mean, if you have a, an intense field there and you introduce something to it, it's like a laser. It'll burn it up. So it's, but this is invisible. And with the military doing the exercise there, knowing about it, and maybe their connection on on black projects, knowing that these things do exist, uh, where they come and come out of, they may have been there waiting for something to come out, and so they could you know shoot it down and then reverse engineer whatever they do these days. But um, it seems like the military is definitely aware of what's going on in that area. But without a doubt, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking into a case at the moment and I don't know how much time we've got. To, we've got about get. 11 minutes left. But, well, if I touch on this and we do another talk at some other point in time, I, we can we can do this. Um, and it's, it's about Willsthorpe, which is probably three to four miles from where I'm sat right now. And whilst writing Truth Proof, I was contacted by an elderly couple um, who lived at Wils- who live at Willsthorpe. Um, they're still there. The old chap's passed away, but the lady's still alive. And all that there is at Willsthorpe are 16 flats right. uh, in, in blocks of four, and they sit right on the edge of the North Sea, meaning if you had a stone at high tide, you could throw it into the sea. There's nothing in front of them but the sea. And she told me this fabulous story, this lady. She uh, put a small advert in the paper to uh, ask him for information about unusual things around the area. And she said to me that uh, she saw a circle of spaceships over the sea. And uh, that were her words. And she said she just felt compelled to go into her porch one evening at ten past eleven. And there they were, just over the sea in a huge circle. And she called her husband down who was alive, obviously alive, I'm going to say alive at the time, I myself sound stupid, um, and he looked at him and they observed him for a few minutes and then they frightened him and he, she says he went upstairs and put his head under the pillow. But she, <laughs> observed, she observed these craft, uh, Ronald, for almost an hour. In a amazing. Year. Yeah, and the, I said, she said, the, oh, she said, they looked amazing, I'll never forget it as long as I live. And she said there were loads of them and I thought she was meaning like four or five. She claims that there were 30 to 40 blue and white glowing boomerangs in a big circle. 30 to 40? Yeah, over the sea. Now, it, it, this, I'd love to talk more about this story, and I know we don't have time because <laughs> so many elements to it. She said they started to peel away in, in ones after about the first 30 minutes, and the circle slowly decreased. And they were just going off at right angles at about 45 degrees and, and disappearing. She said the sea was boiling. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness, yeah. The, so, so it seemed there was some sort of energy concentration there for something, something either opening up or closing down. Well, well yeah, well, what's interesting, what, what's really interesting here is I, I didn't realize at the time. She told me this story, and she didn't have a date for it. She said, oh, be four or five years ago, this one she told me. And she said, I, I got the dates, and I got it all eventually. She said to me, and the next day, they were all over the beach. And I thought, what do you mean all over the beach? Does she mean aliens? And, you know, and, and I said, what do you mean? She says, the army came. No, right, right. 
She says they were there for two or three days. She says they had them big searchlights like they had in war, skimming the sea all through the night. And I thought, okay, yeah, fine. And I, I left the story. And I left it, oh, well, I left it quite a, quite a long time. And then I, I, I'm good friends now with a, a guy who employs bait diggers on the beach. They dig worms for sea anglers, lugworms, right. ragworms and things. And he, just by chance, he said to me, my lads, he says, my lads uh, about three or four years ago, you know, he says they saw some triangular-shaped objects entering sea off Wildsthorpe. I says, really? He says, yeah, yeah. And the key the key into the story was he went, and then they got uh, uh, marched off the beach by the army. They were all over the beach. So suddenly I'd got this old lady's story and their story. So I asked Rob Fletcher, the, bait, the, the man who employed the bait, because if he'd got a date... So he's looking through his old diaries because tides dictate when they dig for bait. Do you see? Yeah. He says it was September. Definitely September. He says, mm, I think it will be between 2008 and 2010, within them three years. So off I go to an archive, I start searching. And I thought I'd found a big cat story. Because I see this little, just this little headline, and it said, Lynx visit Bridlington. Lynx? Like the cat yeah. links or the but, aircraft? Brian, that's exactly what I thought, like the cat links. So then, <laughs> then when I read it, it said, visitors to Bridlington were treated, and it gave the day, and I think it was the 15th of September. Uh, it says when ch- two Chinooks and two Lynx helicopters arrived at South Shore, which is Willsthorpe, and landed on the beach at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. So I got my date. That we'd, we'd got the dates. It, there's only ever been one military exercise. So subsequently, I sent freedom of information requests, and sure enough, it's, it was a top secret exercise. Uh, I've not told them anything about the UFOs. Obviously, if anybody's listening to this afterwards, they know they know why I'm looking into it. But there's tons and tons more elements to why the Willsthorpe story is interesting, because at the time, I ran a website called ILF UFO in 2009. ILF meaning intelligent light forms. And I was working hard at the time. I'm, you know, I'm a joiner by trade, and I was, I was absolutely steaming. I was sort of uh, fit as I'm ever going to be, and I was, I was working hard. So people were sending me all these UFO reports, which I was documenting on the website. So, listeners, anybody that wants to do a little bit of research, just type in ILF UFO not even till 2009 and you will find that the bulk of the information i i the 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 internet has documented and archived is there it's not been changed or altered since 2013 because i closed the website in 2013 right and the great thing that is the internet documented this so my reports from them are there and they back up everything this old lady is telling me and her husband I'll tell you, I, I would I would actually uh, get in get a little bit more kind of closer, and I'd ask if I can put a live feed camera um, on the roof or something, and connect that to the internet and have monitoring of that area. Because if thirty plus UFOs are are visible, you know you're going to get something on that 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 uh, archive uh, if it's if it's possible. But this is incredible. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, Mr. Sinclair, this was a great place to end it. I, we, we could go on for another hour, and if we can have you back next week, we can at least continue this. But 
But what I wanted to, to tell you, because you mentioned the internet, we also, Brian and I, on the uh, Inside the Goblin Universe, we actually do have uh, an internet page. So if anybody knows about this particular event or if anybody else witnessed this, feel free to leave you know your, uh, your uh, eyewitness remarks concerning this. And then when we have you back next week, uh, Mr. Sinclair, maybe we can actually have some more you know, input upon what exactly went on there. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the address there again, Brian? It's on, well, we use Facebook. It makes it easier. So it's inside the Goblin Universe group on Facebook, and there's a page as well. And if you also have information you just don't want to publicly leave it, you could send us an email at questions at insidethegoblinuniverse.com. And we'll, uh, Ron and and I get it, and we'll address it. Yeah. Yeah, and when we have you back, hopefully some other people will bring and uh, you know uh, talk about this story. But but yeah, an hour just simply wasn't enough, my <laughs> friend. So when we have you back, I, I mean, I want to continue this about the UFOs. I want to talk to you a little bit about the beings that you would experience, uh, and then let's get into you know some of the other strange things like black cat reports and all the other kind of craziness that's going on over there. But the accounts of the Flixton werewolf is amazing. Oh, uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. So uh, whenever we uh, jump off here, uh, we will get all of your uh, information and we'll uh, contact you about coming on. But before you go, my friend, let's let's plug that book again and tell us, uh, tell the listeners where we can find it. Right. Well, you can find the book on Amazon, and I think Waterstones have te- taken an interest in it, and the library service here in the UK uh, 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 of requested books and it's called truth proof the truth that leaves no proof if you just type that into google you don't even have to search it is the first thing that you will find just type truth proof and it will be there there's also a facebook page a truth proof uh facebook page but as i told uh, brian and ronald uh, slightly before the show i've had i've had a few things to deal with in the family just of the last few weeks so that's not being updated but there's still information on there and anything to do with Wilsort that you've just heard, type in ILF UFO. The archived website is there. Everything I'm saying about the old couple's sighting is backed up by historic reports that cannot be altered. So there you go. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, absolutely, my friend. And just like I said, just hang on for uh, for a moment here after we sign off here. We'll get all of your information and, uh, and have you on again uh, next week. But, yeah, I'll tell you what – Inside the Goblin Universe is not your typical station, uh, the typical program. Uh, we really want to open up a forum to talk about all these kind of unexplained events and not put labels on them nor put them into categories because I believe, as does Brian and as you do as well, Mr. Sinclair, like you had said, we seem to have something coming from uh, – Uh, an origin, a genesis from a particular source. So we're here to try to get to the uh, bottom of that that source. So like I said, anytime we can have a guest on like you that can pontificate and elucidate so intelligently, you know, that's really what we're going for here. And I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of this. So I thank you so much for for coming on to uh, Paranormal UK Radio Network's Inside the Goblin Universe. Thank you very much. All right, I guess that's it for us then, Brian. Until uh, next week, we'll have Mr. Sinclair back for uh, uh, our number two. Part two. Uh, that, yeah, that, that will be it. So we'll be signing off here. I'm Ronald Murphy. I'm Brian Bowden. And we'll see you next week inside the Goblin Universe on Paranormal UK Radio Network. <laughs>